People are strange. They act strangely, especially at major holidays and celebrations. And it's not always pretty. Like at Christmas. For the healthy, it's just a lot of fun with all the kids and the family. You know, Have some great food. Watch some tearjerker movies. Cuddle up by the fire with your sweetie. You know, just a wonderful thing. But some... <sighs> well, some are in it for what they can get for themselves. And I'm not just talking about those who are overly anxious to receive all the gifts. You know, <laughs> We're seeing Christmas in July ads now. The real Christmas advertising starts in October. Just get it straight here. They're in it for the money, okay? <laughs> That's Christmas to them, money. And how about the county fair? These all started as a wonderful way for families from all the various farms to get together and have a great time showing off their animals and their crops and their clothing that they made by hand. And, of course, their kids. Just all a lot of fun. And, just like Christmas, there's still a lot of fun to be had at the county fair. But there are also the hawkers. Get your juice maker here, you know. Buy your dog a bone here. Get your toenails clipped here. Okay, not that last one, but <laughs> just making sure you're listening. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people, though, who live by P.T. Barnum's maxim, a fool and his money are soon parted. <laughs> you know, that's how P.T. Barnum lived. And they believe it's okay to take your money if you're so stupid as to let them have it. And then consider Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday. That's what that means. Fat Tuesday. It's all about indulging in excess. Too much overly rich food. Too much alcohol. Too much partying. And way too much willingness to part fools from their money. And here's the... To me, this is the really sad part. County fairs used to start with prayer. And usually were held around the church. Celebrating God's goodness to His people. Christmas is supposed to be about remembering God sent His Son into the world. Mardi Gras is celebrated because the Roman Catholics require this solemn behavior and controlled consumption of food and drink starting the very next day for, incredibly, for the season of remembering that Christ died and rose from the dead for us. Let's get our partying on before they shut us down for Lent. That's really what Mardi Gras is. Wow. How in the world did things which had such a good beginning fall to such a disreputable reality? Well, it's all too easy an answer. Too many people want for themselves. More than they want for God and for others. So what should we do about this? Should we do anything about this? <laughs> when Jesus was born into the world, when he started his public ministry, the worship of God was centered in one place and primarily to one time. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You see this coming, don't you? <laughs> Well, first, let's step back just a little and get our setting clearly established. For centuries, God had been beating into the heads of the Jews that they were to worship Him. 
He gave them special things to do to help them understand how they were to worship. He gave them special times for that same purpose. He even gave them a special place to meet so that they could learn how to worship Him. But, of course, this kind of thing, all of this meant power. And power means money. And so, like the county fairs and Christmas and Lent, some said, we can turn this to our advantage. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of the story. In recent events, Jesus had begun his ministry and called his core group of disciples. He has shown them a sign so that they believe in him at the wedding at Cana, which we discussed last week. So now comes the big celebration, the Passover in Jerusalem. This is the major annual event in every Jew's life. Now it's true. Jesus has been going every year since he was 12. So he's seen the huge crowds. He's watched all that's been happening before this. The incredible gargantuan celebration that this has become. But Jesus has never been there before as a rabbi in public ministry. So this is it. Jesus' first public appearance at the Passover, which was like the county fair and Christmas and Mardi Gras rolled into one. The good and the very, very bad. And you do see this coming, right? You ready? In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Whoa. <laughs> Can you just imagine somebody doing this? Remember, this is, this is like a big church event to them. Well, it's more than that. They thought there was really only one place to worship God, one church. And Jesus comes in whipping people with cords, driving sheep and cattle out, throwing other people's money all over the place, flipping tables over. Wow, what would you do if you were sitting at one of those tables? (laughs) I mean, if somebody started doing this, what would you do? What would you do if you were just standing there watching? You know, at Christmas time. Remember, think this, think like that. This is, wow, what a tremendous scene. What did Jesus mean by doing these things? And remember, Jesus never, ever did anything wrong. Ever. He never sinned like other people do. So this wasn't wrong to do. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Flipping tables, throwing money, driving cattle and people, and you're saying this is a good thing? Okay, that's a good question. (laughs) But before we answer that, maybe we'd better figure this out. Why is Jesus so furious? We know people, other than Jesus, get stuff wrong. But still, we could ask, what did the people who were there think? I mean, they must have had some idea, right? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, don't get too excited because they don't get it right exactly. They remembered the Scriptures. You know, that's good. But they misunderstood what they meant. The disciples were all excited by this event because they thought Jesus was going to rule I mean, who would do this kind of thing if they weren't going to take over, right? 
Stomp on those bad guys, Jesus. Make things right again. And in a sense, I know this sounds terrible, but they thought Jesus was serving Himself, preparing to make Himself a king in the same way they'd served themselves. (laughs) Maybe the Jewish leaders were thinking the same thing. So the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Okay, well... That actually doesn't sound like a bad question. <laughs> I mean, really, when you think about it, Jesus is, he's caused this major disruption here. But what a strange way to say it. Why not? What are you doing? Or, why are you doing this? I mean, that would seem like a good thing to say. Why do they say, what sign? Unfortunately, this is also pretty easy to figure out once you think about fallen human nature and first century Jewish understanding of reality. Signs were everything to them. They weren't really interested in right or wrong. (laughs) They were only interested, these leaders, in their power base. Remember, all the people with that Jewish understanding of reality, they're all standing around listening. So the leaders, who don't think anybody can actually do signs, Figure Jesus just fall on his face, right? What sign do you show us? Can't show a sign. You're going to fall on your face, right? Now remember, his disciples know he can do miracles. They've seen it with their own eyes. So they're all ready. Come on, Jesus, do it. And so Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? <laughs> I mean, what? What? You've got to kind of give it to them here. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? They were a little confused too. I, I can't really say as I blame them. It would be nice to think that we'd get it. But the truth is, we'd probably be thinking like they were. <laughs> you see, their eyes were on the physical, the temple. The temple that is their power base. First of all, they'd never want to destroy it. But rebuild it in three days? Even if those rotten Romans did destroy the temple, who could ever rebuild it in three days? But, of course, they're missing the whole point. They've forgotten that God only gave them a special place, the temple, so that they could worship Him. It's not about the temple. It's about the one for whom the temple exists. Why is Jesus so furious? The key is in Jesus' statement. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But let's step back a little. George Barna. You may not have heard of him, but he can help us out here. Mr. Barna is a research guru. He especially does a lot of research in Christianity. He himself is a believer. So he did a big study of non-believers. He wanted to find out what keeps them from accepting Christ. Why don't they jump in? Their response? Okay, they're... There may be a lot of excuse-making going on right here, but, but the stated reason that most say that they don't want to become Christians is Christians. It's not the belief that causes them to stay away. It's the Christians. That's why they stay away in droves, according to Mr. Barnum. In other words, Christians, or at least their perception of Christians, keep people away from Christ. Maybe Jesus was furious because the Jewish leaders were misrepresenting God. That 
they were responsible for keeping people from true worship of God. From worshiping the true God. It's simply the case that people see God in His representatives. And back then, that meant the Jewish priests who were the leaders of Israel. And they should have known better than to allow this terrible misuse of the temple. But they were too interested in the power and the money to think about those things. Let's look at some of the wrongs they committed and allowed to be committed. First, of course, they were fleecing the flock. (laughs) We know Jesus cleared the temple on this first Passover, but we also have a record of him doing the same thing on his last. Listen to what he says then. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The Jewish leaders had teamed with disreputable merchants to make money off the people when they were supposed to be there to pray. What could be worse than that? They were killing the worship. People were supposed to come there to pray, to talk with God. How could anyone do that when you physically had to watch every step to make sure you didn't put your foot in the animal's contribution? Okay? And can you imagine the stench? Ooh, we're supposed to worship while holding our noses? How, what? All right, let's say you get past all that and you kind of get used to the smell. So you're getting focused on God, drawing closer to Him, and then, get your pigeons here! Five for a dollar, right over here! You know, we have the best sheep in Jerusalem. What do you, well, you want to give your best to God, don't you? And of course... Everything was sold at exorbitant prices. You've made it a den of robbers. And understand where they were doing this. The temple was arranged so that at the center was the place where the high priest was supposed to meet with God once a year, the Holy of Holies. Next to that was the holy place. This is where a few priests went every day, actually. Uh, But for special occurrences, like with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that's where he met Gabriel, the angels, in that place. Now, outside that was the court of the priests, and then the court for Israel, for the men, then the court of women, which was as far as any Jewish women were allowed, and surrounding all of that, all the way around it, was the Gentile court, the place where most anyone who wanted to worship God was allowed. This is where the thieves set up shop. Listen to how Mark reports on Jesus' actions that last Passover. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. They now use the Gentile court as a store, effectively making it unavailable for anyone else to use for, oh, let's say, the worship of God. God wanted all nations to be free to praise Him in that temple. And they killed the worship. No wonder Jesus was furious. And why did God tell them to celebrate Passover anyway? So that all Jewish children would grow up knowing God saved Israel. And all the adults and anyone who wanted to know would get a picture of God's wonderful saving grace. The ultimate goal of that effort? to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
How could anyone understand the sacrifice of Jesus when they made the Passover celebration a Mardi Gras? Why did the Jewish leaders completely misunderstand the sign? Because they only saw the physical. They couldn't get past their own little hypocritical, grasping world to see the spiritual. What about us regular Joes today? What about us? Some guy runs into our car. Do we look at the physical, like, big dent and get angry? Or do we look at the spiritual and show that shaken person Christ where I'm thinking they probably weren't looking for him? Your oven goes on the fritz and you have to get it fixed. Do you look at the physical and do nothing but whine and complain about how much this is costing? What kind of junk do they make nowadays anyway? All is that repairman's working on it. Or do you think of the spiritual? Maybe God arranged for your oven to quit just when it did for the express purpose of putting you into contact with that very repairman. Maybe his marriage is falling apart. Maybe his kid's in the hospital. Maybe God is preparing his spirit to hear the message of Christ. Do we see the spiritual? I'd love to tell you how often I do. But the truth is... (laughs) Usually we just see the physical. Our money going up in smoke. And is it really ours anyway? Just like He set up Passover for those ancient people, God sets up our lives too. Ask why. Something in this is for the kingdom. The spiritual. You know, what is it? Alright, try this. Some temptation comes your way. Is there a spiritual to hold on to? Or do we look at the physical and think, ooh, that'd really be nice. (laughs) Do we see the spiritual and realize Satan wants to sift us like wheat, as Jesus told Peter? How about a person who is a temptation? Maybe instead of experiencing Experiencing us seeking to gratify our fleshly desires, they should be a recipient of spiritual care from us. Will we use people or show them Christ? Will we be a stench and something they have to uh, be careful not to step in? (laughs) Or will they be free to seek God with us? And that's the most important point of all. The Jewish rulers didn't see the sign. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't hear the message. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They heard the words. They got the denotative meaning, destroy, temple, raise up. Got it. (laughs) All they had to do was figure out temple and they'd have gotten the rest. They heard the words but they didn't get their connotative meaning. They couldn't understand their importance because they didn't see Jesus for who He was. They didn't understand that Jesus would rise from the dead. But then there's that other group that may have been the primary group for whom Jesus expressed His anger. This was a sign for the disciples. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
the temple of God is no longer made of stone. It was never intended to be. God's temple is made of flesh and blood, human beings. One thing Jesus is saying is, get ready for the change. Okay, all those people saying, get ready for the change. It's coming. Everything will change when this great sign occurs. Now, wouldn't it be great if the disciple says, oh, wow, really great. Oh, we got it. We got it. Understand it. Eh, they didn't. And I suppose if they really understood what it meant, they'd have first drawn back in horror before embracing Jesus' sacrifice. So maybe it was good they didn't get it right then. The truth is they didn't really get it for another three years after it happened. <laughs> People might not get it when we tell them about Jesus. Not right away. That's okay. Tell them anyway. <laughs> Maybe something will happen later and they will believe. Tell them about Jesus. Well, tell them what? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's what you tell them. When Jesus said it, it was yet to happen. We can tell them it has happened. Okay? It's done. <laughs> we got to understand that everything else Jesus did is ancillary to his death. It's just an added thing. Just... Something to work with his death, burial, and resurrection. He changed water to wine. Shoot, he walked on water, okay? He healed people and on and, you know, it goes on and on. But all those things Jesus did only to point to his death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, think. This is Jesus' first public appearance. And the zeal for his house moved him to action. But the disciples missed the context of the scripture that said, zeal for your house will consume me? Let's look at an event that happened during the crucifixion. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Even this little event was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 69:19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Okay, Rick, that's, that is pretty amazing. I mean, hundreds of years earlier, but what's the point? <laughs> well, this same psalm, this same prophecy contains these words, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We saw the zeal for your house in Jesus driving out the animals, you know, throwing over the tables, clearing out the thieves, getting rid of this reproach to God. But what about the consumed me part? The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The zeal that drove Jesus is what ultimately caused him to be crucified. This action of Jesus was never about a triumphant, domineering king. It was all about a suffering servant who gave his life for the salvation of many. Later, the disciples remembered his words. Then they believed the Bible. Then they believed Jesus. Why do we teach kids the Bible? We keep teaching the Bible until they wonder if we ever teach anything else. We talk about God so much they say, don't you ever talk about anything but God. We teach the Bible because it contains the words of life. 
We speak of God because He is the giver of life. Later, these kids may believe the Bible and come to know Jesus, the giver of life. They may find true life. There's one other group of people involved in these actions whose reactions we should not miss. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You ever heard somebody say something like this? If there really was a God, it would be obvious. If he wants me to believe, he'd make it really clear. If God gave me a sign, I'd believe in him. Yeah, really? They were all in church. They saw lots of signs. But they missed the important thing. The sign is Jesus, risen from the dead. They missed that. In spite of all the signs Jesus did, he said he really only gave one, you know, one that mattered. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They all jumped up and down when Jesus did those other signs. Healed the blind man, healed the lame. (laughs) Yeah. But their hearts, their hearts were only interested in the signs. And the physical. And about Jonah, there was a desperately wicked, evil city in his time called Nineveh. After the great fish incident, when Jonah came to them, he told them about their responsibility to God and they repented. Completely changed who they were. The whole crazy town turned to God. And after Jesus compared himself to Jonah, he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Is all about Jesus Christ. <laughs> they were there for the signs, but not for Jesus. For what do we come to church? Why did we come to Jesus? I mean, what's the point of all this? The physical, the spiritual. Well, it all boils down to this, really. Your life doesn't belong to you. (laughs) Really, I mean. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he made you. So he owns you. And then that one great sign says he bought you. So Jesus owns you twice over. But he says in the Scripture... Basically, this most incredible thing. I want to give you a gift. (laughs) You. (laughs) A better, a new and better you. But first, you must give yourself to me. Your poor, pitiful self. (laughs) And you see, we are all at our foundation. When all the pretense is stripped away, we're evil at our core. And Jesus gets pretty furious when it comes to evil, especially evil that keeps people from worshiping him. So how can we, with knowing what we are, how can we ever be acceptable to him? If and only if we accept the gift of Jesus Christ and the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection, can we be made pure 
so as to be able to live with God eternally. Only when He remakes us are we fit for the new creation. And the new creation is when God gives you, you. (laughs) You in glorified, incredible, amazing form. And we will give ourselves to Him again. And He gives you a better you yet. And it goes on and on and on. An eternal, perfect harmony of self-sacrifice. Jesus was furious. Mostly Jesus was furious with the hypocrites. You are aware there are still hypocrites, right? (laughs) Those willing to put on the show in order to fleece you. Don't let them draw you into their den. Keep other people away from them. (laughs) They're robbers. Jesus was furious, but at the same time, he was calm and purposeful. He had an exact plan. Here at his first public appearance, he knew where he was headed. To the cross. And on to the resurrection, you know, to heaven. He knew he would suffer but he could bear it because he knew the outcome, which includes our salvation and his glory. Can we bear the little troubles of our lives and look at the spiritual rather than the physical? Well, we can if we know the outcome. And we shouldn't stop here without thinking of some others. For some, maybe the question is, Do you see Jesus? Or just the show? (laughs) Hopefully you're not a hypocrite. But ask people, do you know the outcome of your life? If you died tonight, do you know you would be welcomed by Jesus? Jesus.